please join me again by turning in your Bibles to John chapter 21. John 21. Perhaps the last time, the last sermon in our lengthy series on the Gospel of John and one comes with something of a bittersweet sense of leaving the magnificence of the gospel as it's opened up by this apostle at the end of the first century. Read with me as we start with verse 15 and read to the end of the chapter. John 21 verse 15. So when they had broken their fast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to him, Feed my lambs. He says to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to him, Tend my sheep. He says to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus says to him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto you, When you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you shall be old, you shall stretch forth your hands, and another shall gird you and carry you where you would not. Now this he spoke, signifying by what manner of death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he says unto him, Follow me. Peter, turning about, sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is he that betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, says to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus says to him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went forth among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him that he should not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple that bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that should be written. 
Please again let us join our hearts together as we bow in prayer. Our Father, as so many times in the past, we again this morning approach the hour of preaching in much weakness and with the accompanying uncertainties that are typical of our sinful flesh. But we believe, our Father, that we do not approach this hour without your promises secure to us in which you have said that you would withhold no good thing from them who walk uprightly, and that you delight to give good things to your children who ask you, and that if you spared not your own Son, but delivered him up freely for us, how would you not also with him also freely give us all things, the things pertaining to life and godliness? And surely, O Lord, the ministry of your word pertains to our life and godliness. And surely the request that you would help us in preaching and hearing and obeying your word is a request that is akin to that which is nearest and dearest your own heart. Your son's blood has been shed for our spiritual well-being, for our everlasting life, for our salvation. And you have appointed the means of preaching as a central means in accomplishing that end. And so we ask now, our Father, not for the sake of any good in us, not upon the ground of any righteousness with us, but upon the foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ, His righteousness, His excellent and acceptable sacrifice for us, and our standing with You in Him, the anointing of Your Spirit which we have by grace, the adoption whereby we call You Father, Father, we ask on the ground of Christ and all that is ours in Him, and the multiplied grace that is ours in Him, that You would now do that which we can hardly even imagine, which we do not even know how to ask, that You would pour out Your Spirit upon us in this hour. We confess that in some ways we've not expected much. We've allowed our own distractions to overwhelm us. We've allowed our own dullness of heart to quieten our requests. We pray you would forbid such to prevail, but that you would come and intervene. O oh Lord, in mercy deliver your servant this morning who preaches to your loved ones. Deliver them from dullness of hearing and come and glorify yourself. We would not cease to, be, to beseech you that you would save sinners in our midst and that you would strengthen this church in following the Lord Jesus. Open up your word and give us help to be faithful to it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have begun to open up this chapter under the heading, Lessons of Lordship. And we have seen that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his appearance to the disciples, on the Sea of Galilee here in the last appearance, or at least the last one recorded in John's Gospel, has demonstrated much of the implication of his own lordship. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. And this chapter is, as it were, something of an addition to the Gospel which has focused on the saving worth of the name of Christ. And now focuses upon his own church and his purpose 
for the ministry of the gospel to his church, and especially centered in this man, Simon Peter, a man who embodies in his own life so much that is needful in all of us, in his failings and in his restoration, and so many lessons, therefore, that can be learned from this chapter. We have begun to consider last week the requirements for the service of Christ. We've seen something of the manifestation of his lordship in this chapter, some of the implications of that manifestation, and we are considering now what it is required of us who would serve him. And we've opened that concept up in three ways, and we've begun to consider the first. The first requirement for the service of Christ as demonstrated in this encounter with the apostles and in his dealings with Simon Peter particularly, is this, a proper biblical self-assessment. And last time we opened up this idea of true biblical humility. And even as we heard in our scripture reading this morning, without humility, no one can serve the Lord. We defined this thing called humility not as a self-denigrating, debilitating absence of purpose or confidence or holy ambition, which is typical of our age, but the well-informed, experiential awareness of one's true self in the presence of God and his fellow men. True biblical Christian humility is the well-informed, experiential awareness of one's true self before God and before his fellow man. It's what the old writers used to speak of when they said, according to your place and station. It's what, until a generation ago, we were able to say in our society about keeping your place. But no one believes any longer that men have a place. Children don't have a place. Women don't have a place. Nobody has a place. You go wherever you want. You say whatever you want, whenever you feel it. And nobody has a right to rebuke you, stop you, fire you from your job, or interrupt you. The idea of personal and individual freedom has swallowed up most of the foundational truth of the Word of God in our generation. But the Bible still stands. And if you're going to serve Jesus, you're going to have to figure out what your place is and keep it, and be faithful in it. That is essentially what biblical humility is. Let not a man think of himself more highly than he ought to think, rather let him think sober or sane judgment. And in that vein, let him then express his service to Christ wherever the gifts of Christ manifest themselves in him. We read that in Romans chapter 12. But in opening up this concept of humility, we said in the first place that biblical humility involves a recognition of our helplessness without Christ. And quoting from chapter 15 of John's Gospel, when the Lord said to the apostles, Without me, you can do nothing. It is utterly necessary that to serve Christ, we must first recognize 
that we can do nothing for him without him. He is not calling us to serve him in our own strength, by our own righteousness, or through our own understanding. Lean not to your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and he shall bring it to pass. But without that, no service of Christ is acceptable or even possible. But then this morning, I want us in the second place to open up this concept of a proper, proper biblical self-assessment by stating that also required in a servant of Christ as to humility is the acknowledgement of our proneness to fall, to fail, and to forget. A part of humility is the ready acknowledgement of our proneness to fail, to fall, and to forget. We are never to come to the place that we are confident in our future commitment to Christ, or confident in our future performance of any or all service to Him. We are not only capable of falling, failing, and forgetting, we are prone to fall, fail, and forget. And we must acknowledge that as a part of our daily thinking and approach to daily duty. The Bible puts it this way, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that is addressed to saints in Corinth who are confident of their standing and their gifts for Christian service, who are multiplied in gifts for service, who have grown boastful and presumptuous in their gifts. And the Apostle warns them, Take heed. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. May I make an application to some of you who this morning, under the sound of my voice, still sit on the fringe of the kingdom of God. You have yet to decide in the heart that you belong to Christ and he's first. That isn't settled in the way you think, in the way you pray, in the way you function in your job or with your spouse or with your children or your parents. You're still even hearing gospel preaching as it were from a distance. You've not embroiled yourself into Christ, no holds barred. Let me apply it to you. Take heed. It's going to require much more of you than merely appearing here once or twice or three times a week and putting in your stamp of approval to the worship and the preaching. It's going to require more of you than tolerating preaching or even listening a bit to preaching, or even listening with excellent hearing to preaching. As one preacher said when I was a young man, one of the greatest sins in America is sermon listening. Beware, lest you sit under faithful preaching and do not what it requires of you. And do not thoroughly Repent of your pride and run from your uncleanness and fear God and correct your life. 
let him that thinks he in his fringe commitment stands, take heed, lest even that which he seems to have be taken away from him. To whom much is given, of him shall much be required. Whether you believe it or not, you dear people in this place have been given much, and of you much will be required at the day of judgment. Acknowledge our proneness to fall, fail, and forget. As the scriptures and the Lord said to children of Israel of old, Beware, lest you forget the Lord. How many times last week did you forget the Lord? You got all tied up and caught up in the things of the world, some of them legitimate, some of them perhaps not so legitimate. And for a time it was as though the Lord Jesus Christ had never come to your life at all. It was as though God didn't exist. You would thoughtlessly enter into promises, enter into contracts, make commitments verbally without even thinking or stopping to think of the providence and the sovereignty of the Lord. <clears throat> Peter couldn't believe. He would not believe the Lord's assessment of him just recently when the Lord said, You will deny me before the rooster crows. You will all leave me alone. Not I, said Peter, though all else forsake you, never will I. You see, assurance is a blessed gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of of a maturing faith. It is a sweet and precious thing to secure and to have. The assurance of faith. Assurance that I'm in Christ. Assurance that my Father in heaven loves me and will take care of me and he'll not let me fall. That's a blessed Christian grace and privilege. However, cocksuredness, presumption, boastful self-confidence, is sure to be tried by the Lord and found wanting. Assurance is a sweet thing to have, but self-confidence is a dangerous thing, and the Lord will put it to the test and prove it to be lacking in virtue and power. Learn from Simon Peter's experience. Don't learn it for yourself. Learn it from the Scripture. Acknowledge your proneness to fall and fail and forget. You'll be on safe ground in your prayers as you say, Lord, I know that as soon as I get up off my knees, I am prone to swallow the biggest lie of the devil. I am capable of falling for the biggest temptation. Some of you have found that even recently. How quickly from a Lord's Day service in which you feel the powers of the world to come upon your heart and you feel stirred, and you walk out the door and even take the preacher by the hand and say, I've, I know that God is here. I know the truth is here. I've been moved to turn my life around. How quickly by the time you get home, it's as though that never happened. And how soon, within a 24-hour period, you can swallow the greatest temptations for the vilest kind of uncleanness, at least in thinking in heart, that you ever imagined you're capable of doing. Acknowledge it. You have enough sin in your own heart 
to damn you and destroy you in an hour, in a minute, if the Lord removes his restraining grace from you for one second. And left unharnessed and unrestrained by the ministries of the Church of Christ and the Scriptures and your regular praying and your striving against sin, you'll fall. You will fail. You'll forget the Lord. Everyone in here better acknowledge that he or she is prone to forget the Lord. You say, Pastor, that's just not the case. I've never forgotten the Lord. You just did if you said that. Because he says you're prone to forgetting. You better acknowledge it. You're not humble till you do. We said last week that true biblical self-esteem comes only after true biblical self-abhorrence. You remember what we meant? Not a suicidal abhorrence of self in which you decide the world would be better off without you. You may as well throw in the towel, chalk it up and end it all, and do the world a favor. That is not biblical self-abhorrence. We're not speaking of that kind of self-centeredness. That even its last act points everything to itself. Even its last desperate appeal for attention is twisted and perverted. That's not what we mean. But true biblical self-abhorrence means to hate yourself as a sinner. To despise your proneness to turn away from God. Not to love Him. Not to seek Him. Not to rejoice in the good things of God instead of the ugly things of the earth. True biblical self-abhorrence is repentance. It is an acknowledgement of your sin to the depth and to the degree that God knows that it's sin and to forsake it with the same fervor and vigor that the Lord requires of you to forsake it. To confess it. Meaning to say the same thing about it God says about it. Not attempting to mitigate it, to minimize it, to justify it, to rationalize it, to lower its sting in the conscience, but see it as it is, confess it for what it is, call it what it is, and run from it. What the Bible calls godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. In which you hate what you are as a sinner so much that you will do anything in your power not to continue to be that way. And you will call on all the resources of God to help you in that rejection of yourself as a sinner. It is looking into the spiritual mirror of the perfect law of liberty and seeing yourself in reflection in that law and knowing that you come up short and you hate it. You that love righteousness, we read in our opening song, hate evil. Not just evil outside but evil in here. In fact, you have no right to hate other men's evil until you've come to hate your own. And a great discipline is to remember first to start with the beam that is in your own eye before you pick around at the moat in your brother's eye. True biblical self-esteem is a result of true biblical self-abhorrence. Godly sorrow that does what? It works repentance that is not needed to be repented of. A repentance that you don't have to go back and be sorry you did. 
a repentance that lasts and gets results. That's how you know if you've truly repented. If you've truly repented, you see progress in holiness. You see results. Never perfect in this life. Often so slim you can barely see them, but you see them. True repentance changes your attitude towards sin and changes your approach towards sin and it's a godly kind of sorrow and mourning and grieving that will never ultimately make you sorry or mournful or grieving. Acknowledge your proneness to fall, fail, and forget. But in the next place, opening up the idea of humility. As a part of the requirement of serving Christ, humility requires confession and reliance upon the superiority of Christ's virtue and power compared to your own. See, that's the positive side. Not only knowing you're going to blow it, or prone to blow it, but knowing that Christ is able to keep you from falling. Confession of and reliance upon the superiority of Christ's virtue and power compared to yours. Don't you see it? The Lord is not asking you to prove to him you can be faithful. Then he'll help. Haven't you seen that yet? He's not waiting for you to be faithful for a while to see if you're worth his investment. He's already made his investment. He's offered himself to you. He doesn't want you to present something to him that he can take of your contribution and then add his blessing to it. That's all self-made religion. It's Cain's religion. It's self-righteousness. God abhors it. He resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble who come saying, Lord, my best is not enough. My righteousnesses are as filthy rags at your sight. And if I try my best to be faithful to you, I can't. My heart is a selfish heart. I need grace. But Lord, you have grace. You have the power that I lack. I ask for it. You promised to give it. Give it. We must come to confess and to rely upon the superiority of Christ's virtue and power and wisdom compared to ours. Lord, Peter said, you know all things. He didn't believe that a few weeks before. I'm not even sure how much he was ready to believe it until he'd just seen this display of fishing. But now he's able to say without hesitation, Lord, you know all things. There was a time just recently when Peter thought he knew some things the Lord didn't know. If only the Lord had listened to Peter, he could get this Messiah thing working. Lord, you're here to be a king. Look at let, let these guys kill you. I got a sword. Lord, you're not paying you're not you're a little bit off here. Be it far from you to do the thing that all the scriptures predicted you would do. Be it far from you to fulfill the will of God and save the world from their sins by your death. No, no. We'll save you from that. You're going to be a mighty King David riding in a stallion and conquer our enemies for us. That was Peter's perspective. That was most of the nation of Israel's perspective. 
And the Lord saw that as from the pit of hell. Get behind me, Satan. You savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be from beneath. It's wise of us to acknowledge that none of us can accomplish a thing in the kingdom of God until we come to grips with the Lord's sufficiency and his supply of all our needs in every endeavor. Peter had questioned the Lord's judgment earlier. The Lord said, all of you are going to forsake me. Peter said, not I. But now he knows Jesus knows everything. Lord, you know all things. The Lord has proven right in every prediction, in every assessment, assessment, in every assertion. Christ, a carpenter, is an expert fisherman, while Peter, an expert fisherman, toiled all night and caught nothing. I wish you knew how it made a pastor feel when he quotes a Bible verse to someone in counseling that applies principles to a certain endeavor and the person responds by saying oh you're not a scientist how do I have to listen to your count you're not a doctor you're not a lawyer what are you doing telling me what to do well brethren if the only people we can counsel are preachers what are we doing we're in the wrong place we don't have a whole lot of preachers out here to counsel you say, what does that have to do with the point? The point is that the Lord Jesus, through his word, is an expert in every area of your life. He doesn't have to have been a doctor to lay out biblical principles for the conduct of your health. And if a pastor is faithful in teaching those principles, you better be careful how you do listen or don't listen. I'm not suggesting that we are doctors and you do what we say medically. If we're wise enough, we will refer you to a doctor. But there are biblical principles that you need to heed. And if you're too proud to listen unless somebody has already been a fisherman, then you'll never cast your net on the right side. You'll never catch anything for Christ. Now Peter knows that Christ is right. So the psalmist understands rightly when in Psalm 127 he says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchmen wake but in vain. It is vain for you, he says, to rise up early, to take rest late, to eat the bread of toil. So the Lord gives to his beloved even in sleep. You know what that psalm's telling us? What are you striving about? What's all this worry and fretting and hassling and fear about? The Lord gives to His beloved when they're sleeping. What are you afraid of? In the language of the psalmist, get up early, stay up late, eat the bread of toil. Why? Because the Lord may not be able to make it for me here if I don't... There's this picture of desperate panic and unbelief because the person has not come to grips with the superiority of Christ's virtue and wisdom and power compared to his own. It's vital that if we become truly humble, we not only confess our tendency to fall and fail and forget, but Christ will never fall or fail or forget. We need to see it clearly that the Lord is sufficient. There is nothing more needed or more liberating than for one to come to the end of himself 
and to cast himself on the mercy and the power of Christ. Much of the Lord's dealings with us are designed to bring this about. The Lord allows us to fail the way he did Peter. Sometimes he lets us stew in our failure for a while. Sometimes he points out our failure and breaks our heart. Jesus is not above bringing grief to his people. He is not in the perpetual business of in every circumstance making you feel good. That would be the worst thing he could ever do to you. It would be just like a parent always making his children feel good in every situation. The way David did with Adonijah. Never displeased him in anything he did. And ruined him. And ended up having to lose him. The Lord loves you more than that. He doesn't spare the rod, and sometimes his rod takes the form of grieving you by pointing out your failure. Three times the Lord asked Peter, do you love me? And the third time he descended in his language to a word that I believe is a lesser word than the two he used the first time. Agape, agape, phileo. He descended to Peter's level of warm brotherly affection away from that I believe more exalted word of agape which is used in 1 Corinthians 13 and it grieved Peter that he asked him the third time the Lord is not afraid of grieving Peter the Lord wants Peter to really get this into his skull do you remember how many times you denied me you remember how vehemently you protested when I said you would do you really love me more than the rest of these guys? Or did you not do everything they did when they fled and forsook me? Peter, I want you to go through the pain of analysis. And I want you to know what you are. You're nothing without me. And upon the heels of what I just did for your fishing, don't you forget that not only are you nothing without me, with me you can do anything. I'm your expert. You depend on me. I'm going to depart here and make application. In this place there are those who know that they're guilty of sin. And you know you're in a battle. But you've not come yet to believe you can win. You've got two problems. You're trying your best to give something to Jesus. You're fighting hard to do good. And every week you blow it. And then what are you tempted to do? Well, I can tell you what you're tempted to do. I've heard the voice. He says, what's the use? It's all this stuff is a bunch of junk anyway. First of all, they probably don't have a right to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. Probably the Bible's a myth. At least these preachers' understanding of it is, you're going to church every week. You're being made to feel bad. Why don't you let go and enjoy your life? Furthermore, even if you believe all this, you can't change. You've tried. The world has its hooks in your heart. You can't stop what you're doing. Why keep bugging yourself with this nuisance called preaching? With these people called Christians that, whose very presence bothers you and embarrasses you and puts you on the defensive. Did I read your mail? No. I got the same letter, open letter, from the pit. 
See, what you haven't reckoned with is two things. You have not yet understood you will never succeed. You will always fail. You can't conquer your sin. That's why you needed a Savior. There would be no need for Christ if you can stop sinning. You don't need somebody to help you stop your sinning. You need someone to save you from your sinning. The very language of the Bible necessitates utter humility before Christ. Lord, I'm nothing. You're everything. You're the Savior. I'm the saved. Salvation is just like creation. You were not. God said you would be and you are. That's called creation. You're the created. He's the creator. And there's a vast difference between the two. Right? We forget that. Salvation, the very same language is used in the Bible about salvation. A new creation. There was a time you were not the people of God, now you are. What made you the people of God? You didn't decide to straighten up your life, tidy up your spiritual tie, get on your nice spiritual dress and show up before God and say, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Will you join me and help me and let me give you a little bit of the credit? No, no. In the midst of your sinning, God reached forth His hand and gave His Son for you, set His Spirit to bug you, drew you to Himself and changed you, and now you come forth believing in Christ. To you who have not settled that, let me say, until you come to grips with your utter inability and Christ's promised faithful ability, you're going to stay in the misery of your in-betweenness. Nothing more miserable than a double-minded man or woman who knows what's right, Feels bad about himself most all the time, but never learns the sufficiency of Christ's virtue and wisdom and power. You say, well, how do I learn that? Cast yourself on Christ. Lose yourself in Christ. Abhor yourself before Christ. And cast your trust in Christ, and he will come through for you. And brethren, I'm willing to stake my career, my life, my ministry, my Bible on that. If anything's true, that's true. Christ has never failed one who came abjectly before him and said, Lord, I'm nothing, but you're able. I look to you. Save me. Have you done that yet? I mean, have you seen yourself so bad that you know you need to be saved and you want to be saved from all those sins? Not just you hope you won't have to go to hell for them. You really don't want to be a sinner like that anymore. Every one of the sins you know about, you don't want to do anymore. You want God to save you from them, and you've asked Him to do it. Have you done that? That's different, isn't it, from bringing one of those sins up and hesitating about it, and saying, now, Lord, I, I want to be saved. But, but this thing in my purse here, um, don't take it all away. See, that is not faith in Christ. That's faith in the sin. That's dependence on the thing. That's not repentance. That's why you're still frustrated. I declare to you, you must turn from your sin, turn to Christ. When you do, you shall be saved. Don't say, I tried that and it didn't work. No, you didn't. You've made God a liar when you said that. You've not repented. If you have, you're saved. And the fruits are obvious. Well... The Lord sometimes brings us to grief. 
in, in order for us to lose our self-dependence. Now make note of this. We said it last week, we say it again. This is not an incentive to passivity. We are not saying, nor does the Lord say, let go and God one day will come and take care of it. That is not what we're saying. The Lord Jesus looked at those men on the lake and he said, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. As we suggested last week, why couldn't he have just had fish flying into the boat? Now that's the type of miracle that men would think of. A spectacular sort of thing that people would go, wow! But there's a little bit of... I don't know what to call it. God is so wise. There's this little tinge in this experience where they could actually say, well, it was a coincidence. God leaves them a little bit of an out here. They cast the net. They pulled the fish in. If they wanted to, they could actually say, well, lucky guess. Huh, what a break. This guy must have seen some ripples on the other side of the boat we couldn't see. Maybe people have done that kind of thing with God's miracles, haven't they? The Lord has a way of working it so that if you don't believe, you get an out. You can figure out a way not to believe if you want to. But note here, rather than, without me you can do nothing, sit in the boat, hush, don't move a muscle, I'll do it, fish jump in the boat. Not the way he did it. You guys get the net, lug it over to the other side of the boat and pull out fish. Who dragged the fish to shore? Not Jesus. They didn't swim over there and jump out on the beach. They could have. Remember how Peter paid his tax, his temple tax? Why couldn't Jesus say, Peter, look in your pocket? He could have, could he not? Why couldn't he have simply said, and made one appear, a half shekel? I think there's a lesson there. Peter, get your pole with a hook on it, throw it into the sea, the first fish you catch, check his mouth and go pay the tax for you and me. A full shekel, half shekel for Peter, half shekel for Jesus. Why would he go to all that trouble? Why not just materialize a shekel? Or better yet, wipe out the publicans. Why does it do it that way? Brethren, have you not learned yet, and it's one of the vital lessons lost on the youth of this generation. Dependence on Christ does not mean that you quit doing what you're supposed to do. All the more it means you better do what you're supposed to do. Is the commandment there? Obey it. Dependence on Christ doesn't mean lie in your spiritual bed and say, well, if the Lord wants to change my heart, he knows where it is. That is high-handed pride. That is insolence. God hates that. The commandment of the gospel is repent and believe. And never does the gospel command ever suggest that you do that after God did anything. You search the scripture for any gospel commandment that discusses the part that God's doing behind the scenes. The commandments are plain, simple, clear. You repent, you believe, and you'll be saved. That's all. You cast your net on the right side of the boat, you'll catch fish. You sit there and say, if the Lord wants me to have fish, he knows how to, where the boat is. 
and you'll not catch fish. You want to love Jesus? You're not going to come to love him by fiat. It's going to be by saturating your brain with the Bible, by accompanying God's people as frequently as you can, by turning off the radio and the loud music whenever you hear it, by keeping your TV in control of your body rather than vice versa, by saying no to the urges that well up inside your heart and your body when you have them, rejecting them, rejecting the occasions of them, staying away from the people that tend to tempt you to do them and the places that tend to get you with those people. While you're running to and fro in the world, tempting yourself and saying three times a week, Lord, now, you know, I've got these problems that you can save me, and I do believe you're sovereign, but I don't know why you haven't taken the desire out of me. But excuse me, Lord, I've got to go do some more of this sinning. If that's what you're doing, forget it. This passage teaches us that if you don't have the guts and the gumption to put your net on the right side of the boat, you don't catch fish. They're God's provision. It is a miraculous intervention of Christ. But those men had to do the casting of the nets. You have to open your Bible. You have to read it. And when you're dull in reading it, you have to work harder and force your brain and your emotions to come under it and make yourself love it. You say, that sounds just legalistic. Whatever it sounds like, I'm just telling you what I've learned. I'm telling you the truth. If you're waiting for an emotional whim to come over you to make you love God, you're going to wait till hell comes. I'm only 45, but that ought to be enough time for me to have some credibility. I've never had it happen yet. The benefits of Christ in terms of warming my heart invariably come through means. Through diligent attendance to means. Thank God. Because I'm a lazy man by nature. And when I show up at church, I hardly ever come with a warm glow. I have to fight my way to it. I have to plead with God to open my heart. I have to search hymn books. I have to look at a, 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 my Bible and my morning devotionals on Sunday morning as a preacher who you'd think would be filled with this stuff after being in it all week. Not so. Every morning I have to say, give me this day my daily bread. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Thy kingdom come in my heart. Warm this dull heart to glow. Why do I have to battle? Why didn't the Lord ever settle this? Why do I have to keep doing this? I don't know all the reasons why. I just know I have to. And I know that when I do, God is faithful. You men have been learning it on Wednesday nights. I've watched many of you over the last six or seven years learn this. Gradually learn it. I've seen it just sort of like a virus begin to infect all of you more and more. Learning that you don't pray on the basis of how you feel when you first get here. You don't pray on the basis of how you feel after the announcements and prayer requests have been made. You don't pray because, well, that particular prayer request sort of has a particular warm thing in my heart, and I really have a real regard for that. Those people down in Dominican Republic whom I've never met don't know them from Adam. I don't feel a thing toward them, so I'm not going to lead in prayer about that. Now, you've learned, haven't you? You give yourself to carrying them. You tell your soul to enter into their needs. You hear the need. You know it's biblical. It's worthy of your prayers, and you pour your heart into it. What's happened? You go home feeling what you didn't feel when you came. Isn't that the case often? So you haven't given yourself to the things of Christ by just parking your carcass in the pew. This requires labor. 
This is after all night toiling, brethren. We are tired. There ain't no fish out here, and here he is saying, chain sides. Who does he think he is? He's Lord. Do what he says. You want a job? You will find, ordinarily, in this world, Christians get jobs by applying for them. I say that facetiously a bit, but I say it because we have a mentality that if you got the Holy Spirit, you don't have to do what everybody else has to do. God just makes it grow on trees. Sorry. Money doesn't grow on trees. Other things grow on trees. You want apples, you go to a tree. You want money, you go get a job. That's the rule. In all labor, there's profit, the Bible says. But very seldom in looking at trees. Now, I'm making that application because we have a desperate need for it. You want a job? You may have to apply 50 times. You may have to go back to a place that said we're not hiring a third and fourth time. You may have to become a man and tell the guy why he needs you and convince him. Some of you, God's going to hold out on some of this stuff just to build character in you so you can be a better man of God in this church. When are you ever going to assert yourself with a sinner if you can't even assert yourself to get a job to feed your tummy? When are you ever going to convince a man that's working with you that Christ is superior for him if you can't even convince your boss that you need a job and he ought to hire you? God's holding out on some of you so he can stimulate you to growing up. Hey guys, you want the blessing of God? Cast your nets on the other side. Our independence and our self-sufficiency is seen no more plainly and graphically than when we neglect the scriptures and the counsel of others and when we de decide, on the other hand, to blame God if he doesn't do the miracles without our means. You see, there's two kinds of men in this regard. There are lots of young men who think that they impress their fathers or their wives by self-dependence. They think that their wife will be impressed with them if they never let talk to anybody about their big decision. Just go do it. I'm, I'm a man. I bought us a new house. Honey, we already had one. Oh. That sounds silly, but men make stupid decisions because they want to prove that they don't need counsel. And the older you get, the less you depend on your own wisdom. Some of you young men, I'm scared to death. You're going to make big life transforming decisions with your careers and money without anybody's counsel. And then the church has to pay for it for the next 25 years. And you have to pay for it. Don't do it. You don't have to prove to your wife that you don't need counsel. You know what makes a woman secure with a man? To know he's humble enough not to go off half sure, half cock knowing he knows everything. She already knows you're an idiot. No, I'm serious. She's seen you make a fool of yourself. She's tolerating you. You think she believes in you. She's scared to death of you. You want to make your Christian wife, and this especially applies to a Christian marriage, you want to make your wife secure. Let her hear you pleading with God on your knees in front of her. Lord, I don't know anything. You guide me by your book. And let her hear you calling up a couple of pastors and a couple of other men in the church that have been proven themselves to be wise and... You know, before I make this decision, my wife and I wanted to see what you found to be true in this case. You know what that'll do? 
She'll take a deep breath and boy, this guy's not going to go wrong. My Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. This guy's not so proud to think he can do everything himself. Some of your wives are so afraid of your investments. And I say investment, I mean anything from your new motorcycle to the stock market. It doesn't matter. You're not going to prove anything by pretending to be self-sufficient. You're not self-sufficient. You need Christ. But on the other hand, after you've done your praying, after you've done your depending, after you've demonstrated that humility, you better get up and go do the means and work it out and do the investigation and check out all the facts and work at it and God will honor them. A lesson in living. Desperately needed. And I think demonstrated in this simple passage. I don't think I've stretched the text. I think I've applied it. Well, that's humility. But there are two other things, and they're much more brief, and I want us to cover them, if we can, in the next few minutes. Not only a proper biblical self-assessment is required if you're going to serve Christ, but in the second place, devotion to Christ. Almost goes without saying, doesn't it? If you're going to serve him, you have to love him. He asked Peter three times, do you love me? Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one reason is that he wants to make sure before Peter starts feeding sheep, Peter loves Christ. Peter, do you love me? That's the first question that you have to answer. Simon, do you love me? The Lord Jesus Christ, my dear friend, comes first. All other loves must grow out of this love. This is the first and the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's first. The great sin of the Bible is not to love the Lord. Have you familiarized yourself with 1 Corinthians 16, 22? Toward the end of that epistle, a church filled with spiritual gifts. He says in verse 22 of that last chapter of 1 Corinthians, If any man love not the Lord, let him be anathema. Let, it, let the curse of God unto eternity rest upon his head. Notice he doesn't say if any man not make a decision for Christ. Now he doesn't say if anybody has failed to sign the card or pray the prayer or believe the three points or the four steps or the five steps. He doesn't say that. He says if any man love not the Lord, let him be anathema. That word anathema means cursed of God, not blessed of God. It means lost and doomed and perishing forever. And then he closes that statement by saying, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. The time is short. The judgment day is coming. Do you love the Lord? That's the point. All other questions have to wait for this one to be answered. Peter, do you love me? Radical commitment, adherence, and abandonment to Christ is fundamental in serving Him.
not just commitment to serving him or to the service. One of the pitfalls of the Christian ministry is to love the ministry without loving the Lord. It's a, it's a subtle temptation for us to get embroiled in our work with the Bible and with preaching and with people and love the features of that but not love Christ. Peter, before you go feed my sheep, we've got to get something settled. Do you love me? Christ is calling us to himself first. Not to just his service, but to himself. He doesn't want our money. He wants us. Then the money will follow. How do you measure your love for Christ? How can you answer the Lord when he asks you? And dear brethren, he wants to know this from every one of us. How do you measure it? I think two ways it's simple. If you love Christ, you will be as a pattern of your life, keeping his commandments and liking it. Herein is love, the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. The Lord Jesus Christ asks you this morning, Lovest thou me? You will know whether you do or not by examining your attitude toward his commandments. Do you welcome every one of his commandments and know that it's right, rejoice in it, and long to keep it, and are glad you have the privilege of keeping it? The Sabbath. The Lord's day, not your day, not your day. You have not the right to decide what time you get up and what you do with your Lord's day morning. Christ has established what you ought to do with his day. You do not have the right what you do as soon as you walk out this door and get away from our sight. The Lord has decided what this day is to be done all day. It's his day. Does that grieve you? that bug you? Is that a thorn in your side? My family has had to plan its entire vacation and we've had to pay extra money so we could be at the proper town on Sunday two times so we can worship where we know we will not have to apologize to our children afterwards. You say, well, Pastor Ellen, I mean, there are lots of good churches. How do you know? I don't know. That's the point. It's my responsibility to make sure my kids are fed and I'm fed and my wife's taken care of in worship. Not to take a chance on it. And frankly, in all my experience when I did, I wished I hadn't. Messed up my whole vacation. Had to delay one trip. Had to do two motel rooms when we could have been at my mom's house for free. I'm being very personal. And, I, and the temptation brushed by my mind. And it was in this form. Aren't you going a little too far with the Sabbath business? There's lots of Christians that don't have this stern and strict opinion that you people have. Well, let me just simplify the process. You have the right not to go that far with it. But you better make sure you're honest with the 1689 confession that you said you agreed with when you joined this church. 
Because the view of the Sabbath day and Christian worship in that document is clear cut. Why'd you pick that, that one? Because that's the one that tends in this culture to be the most grievous to be obeyed. It's the one we found more ways around and more ways to justify the violation of and more ways to minimize and explain away than any other. And of all the commandments, that's the one that so features the Lordship of Christ, His worship, His fellowship, His presence with His gathered church, and it's the one we most frequently try to avoid in our consciences. No accident that that's one of the favorite targets of the devil. Do you love the Lord's day? If you don't, you don't love Him. And let him that loveth not the Lord be anathema. Did I twist the text? That's the reason you need preachers. Because if you had read your Bible, some of you would never have seen that. Because your conscience is too blind to look at it. And it's why preachers irritate your conscience. Thanks be unto God. Do you love me? You measure it by keeping his commandments gladly. And second, by loving his communion. If you love him, you love to be with him. And you love to be in the places where he frequents. The text that we sang about, that my servant may be where I am. That is not, in my view, just a matter of being in heaven where he is, but wherever he is, you want to be there. And he is especially present when his people meet to worship. And if you love him, you love his communion. I'm not foolish enough to believe that every time we come to church, we go home with a warm glow about us. Often, brethren, I know that you go home and you wonder if God was there. I know that. But the solution to that is not to quit trying it and not to quit pursuing it and to say, well, what's the point? I can stay home and sleep and get more out of it. The solution to that is to labor harder to see to it you do meet God at the place where he promised. If you meet together in his name, he will be there. Maybe you've not met in his name. You love Christ, then you'll keep his commandments. They won't be grievous and you'll love his communion. The psalmist said it in Psalm 27. He delights above all things to be where the Lord is in his temple. Christ is calling us to himself. He says, come unto me. Learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. And there will be rest for your souls. He looks at Peter and he says, follow me. On my terms, Peter, follow me. And that means... You're not going to be able to do it the way you used to do it, Peter. When you were young, you did it your way. When you're old, you're going to do it another's way. You follow me on my terms. Not only on my terms, but in my time. You, as you're in your young years, Peter, you walk this way. But in your old age, there's a time I'm going to call upon you for special extra service. It's my timing. And when it happens, you follow me. The Lord works out the timing. We've read recently in our prayer meetings of two churches who have lost a man who is a member because the men thought they ought to be pastoring and the wisdom of the collected eldership didn't think so. And rather than to wait on God's time in the context of the church these men wanted to pastor, they left to do their own thing. 
Now you say, well, Pastor, what if those pastors are wrong? I'm able to trust God to correct them. A man's gift will make a way for him. True people will notice a man's ability and his character, and the demand will be greater than the resistance of faulty pastors. But my point is, there are men who want to serve God, but they want to do it in their time. You follow Christ, you follow him in his time, on his terms. But you also follow him without regard for what others do. What about this man? No sooner than the Lord said, follow me, Peter turns around. That's not an act of following, is it? It's an act of not following. It's like Lot's wife. Oh, what are we leaving in Sodom? What a wonderful house I had there. My rose garden. Oh, the, the school system. The entertainment. The opera. Sodom, Sodom. Turned her to a pillow of salt. Pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife. You love Christ? Don't turn around and say, Well, Lord, it's to do this for you. What about this other disciple? Nothing more foolhardy than to compare yourself with somebody else in the following of Christ. Nothing more vain and foolish than to look at somebody else and see how he's doing before you commit yourself to Christ. There's one question the Lord Jesus Christ wants to ask you and get you to answer. And you're going to answer it this morning one way or the other. You'll either neglect to answer, and that is a no, or you'll pledge your heart to him. He wants to know. He requires of you an honest answer. Do you love me? On my terms, in my time, without regard to what anybody else does or what I do with anybody else. Do you? You say, Pastor, I... It's hard to answer because looking the way I live, I don't see much love for Christ. Well, let me hasten to say two things to you if you said that and thought that. That's not bad for you to feel that way. That's a good beginning for you to say, Lord, I don't love you very much, if at all. It's okay to search your heart, and it's perfectly good and right for you and wise of you to question your motives and the depth of your love. I'd much rather hear somebody say, Oh, I believe, help my unbelief, than to hear somebody say, I've never had a doubt. I'm much more comfortable with somebody that says, I hardly love the Lord at all, than for somebody that says, Boy, I love Jesus more than anything. Peter used to say, I love you more than anything. He's now saying, Lord, you know, let, you know I love you back. You know everything. I, I'm really not going to be quite so adamant as I have been. Do you love Jesus? Whatever the cost? Is there ample evidence? He said, Pastor, I'm not sure there's evidence. It's all right for you to question yourself and your love. You ought to question your love for Christ. But on the, in the second place, let me encourage you. Take what you have and offer it today to Christ. And say, Lord, you know my true motives. And I'm sure that even in my highest affections for you, there's sin. And I don't even know how much I love you, but Lord, I desire to love you. I want a new heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew within me a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit away from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with your free spirit. I'm dependent on you for all of it. Here I am. Lord, I love you. Help my lack of love. You say, well, how do I really love Christ? I would suggest one thing. There's lots of other things you could do, but one thing. Get by yourself with your Bible. And read what the prophets say about what he's going to do. And read what he did. And read what the apostles say he did and what it meant. And get acquainted with what the Lord Jesus did for your soul. And what you have in Christ. Read through the blessing that is upon your head because he bore the curse for you and liberated you from the curse of your sins. Get acquainted with the goodness of God and his Son. Spend time at the feet of Christ gazing into his gospel face. You cannot meditate upon Christ and what he's done for your poor sins long without loving him. He who is forgiven much loveth much. Lord, I barely love you. I'm so sorry I don't love you more after all you've done for me. I ought to love you more. But you see, that very confession is an expression of love. If you didn't care at all about him, you'd never say such a thing to him. So take what you have, offer it to Christ, and ask him to multiply it. He did it with fish. He can do it with your heart. He's faithful to sinners. There's not a one of us in this room that loves Jesus the way we need to. How can I even say it without understating it? I pray, when I say, Lord, I don't love you as I ought, I shiver at those words. They don't even touch the, scratch the surface of what I'm saying. But I think for most of us, it'd be a lie to say we don't love him at all. I think you ought to say, Lord, I do love you, but I need to love you more than I love you. If I have no love for you, please, oh God, have mercy on me and turn this old rotten self-centered heart around. Feed me with the love of Christ and make me to love you. But, Lord, I do love you. Build in me the kind of love that will follow you and stick to you whatever it costs. If they kill me, Lord, I love you. Hold me to your love. I plead with you who haven't settled that in your soul this morning. And I don't care if you've been baptized or a member of this church or not. This appeal has no reference to that one way or the other. I appeal to you if you've not settled that in your heart. Do not take for granted your ability to come back next week and settle it. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Humble yourself. Confess your absence of love for Christ. And ask him to save you from the critical sin of not loving him. And when he does, he not only will forgive your unlove, he'll put love in its place. And you'll have something change in you. And you'll see it, and we'll see it. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself fill us with the spirit of deep, abiding, biblical humility and love, without which we can't serve it. Let us bow. (coughs) Our Father, you gave us an attentive audience. It was obvious that you had a word for us this morning. And now we do submit these things to you and plead with you that you may do the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish in this hour. 
Oh Lord, we pray for those who may not know how to pray for themselves. That you may create in them a clean and a new heart that finds itself adoring you. And we pray for ourselves that you may correct that which is in us that's so dull and so selfish and so unloving to our King that you may veritably fill this place and all of us with love for Christ. We hardly even know what it means. O oh Lord, hear our plea, have mercy upon us, and solve this problem in us and rectify this condition about us. And let us enjoy loving you and being loved by you. Hear us, our God, and do great things for the sake of your Son, as we ask it all in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.